Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. That's www.gbfperu.org. I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I should like to draw our attention this morning to the book of Galatians, chapter 1, the first five verses. If you're using the Pew Bible there in front of you, page 972. I've been looking forward to this day for some time, beginning the book of Galatians with you. I'm excited about what God would teach us through this book. There's so much here. It's my prayer that God would use this book in the life of our church in a great and powerful way. And in fact, when I looked through the history of Grace Bible Fellowship. It's been a while since the book of Galatians has been preached on. I think it was the 90s the last time it has been preached on, and it's never been preached all the way through. So as I was looking, I thought, well, it's been a while, and it hasn't, we haven't gone all the way through it, so now is a good time to go all the way through it from beginning to end. And my prayer is that God would use this word in our hearts today and as we go through this series together. But would you stand with me as we read the first five verses of chapter one of Galatians? Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, please Give me physical strength and spiritual energy to speak your word with faithfulness, clarity, authority, passion, wisdom, humility, and liberty. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.
When I saw him, I was surprised, taken aback. I looked into his bearded face and saw two black eyes. You couldn't miss them. There they were, staring back at me. Obviously, there had been an accident. There must have been some explanation for this. And so I joked with him, John, what happened? You get in a fight? John didn't laugh at my joke. But then again, John was a biker. Not that kind of biker. He was a cyclist. He rode his road bike all over town, and it wasn't uncommon to see this elder of the church, a short but solid man, walking the grounds in his spandex cycling suit. And then it was there that John, with those two heavily bruised rings around his eyes, and with his nose bent a little bit out of shape, literally, told me of how on one of his bike rides, he came upon a woman in distress. She was being assaulted by a man that might have been her boyfriend. And John had stopped, gotten off his bike, and intervened. He didn't instigate the brawl, but a brawl ensued nonetheless. And while John escaped with two black eyes, the other man had been immobilized by John, spandex suit and all. There was a lesson learned that day from that elder. There is a time to fight. He didn't go looking for a fight. He had no intention that morning when he got up that he would be in such a fight. But when the fight was upon him, when the fight was the right thing to do, he fought. There is a reason why I never tell my boys not to fight. Because there may come a day when that is exactly what they need to do. Sometimes fight because it is the right thing to do. And sometimes fight because it is the loving thing to do. Our world pits those two ideas against one another, don't they? They say, we are lovers, not fighters. As if those two categories are opposed to one another. I'm afraid that this kind of mentality can even infiltrate the church. We are lovers, not fighters. How heart-wrenching and gut-wrenching it should be to us, making us physically sick that too many know a church that fights for all of the wrong reasons. They fight over their own self-interest. They fight over their pride. They fight over their own way. They fight for getting what they want in church. They fight over what they think is best. They fight over menial, temporary, tiny things that have no eternal significance whatsoever. They fight because they've built up idols in their hearts. And those idols are embedded. They've made them blind. And their worship of these idols damages the church. No, too often the world has known the church to be fighters for all of the wrong reasons. But let us not be so naive to adopt the mentality that we are lovers and not fighters because sometimes, dear Christian, you must fight. 
But we are fighting for the right reasons. We're fighting for the very glory of God. And we see in Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia, it is right, it is appropriate, and it is desperately needed that when the gospel is under siege, when the message of the gospel is being attacked, you must fight. But notice where the fight for the gospel begins. It does not begin by penetrating into the world. It does not start by us taking the fight to the world. It does not happen by us going out into the world and looking for a fight. Where is Paul fighting for the gospel? It's not in the world. Of course the gospel is going to be under attack in the world. Of course the world will reject the message, slander the message, dismiss the message, call it all manners of fairy tales and ancient myths. And why are we so surprised when the world attacks this message? Of course they will attack the gospel. There is nothing more offensive, nothing more shameful, nothing more foolish in their minds than the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that is not where Paul is fighting for the gospel. In Galatians, he is fighting for the gospel in the church, and it comes in a very subtle way. It didn't come with flashing lights and a big sign saying to the Galatians, Galatians, you are going away from the gospel. No, it was very subtle. It happened in small ways. It might have happened over time. The one place where we might think a fight shouldn't take place in the place where the gospel should be known and celebrated and exalted, in the place where the gospel is supposed to be at the center of everything that we do as the life of the church. The gospel was being attacked in the church. And so Paul had to fight for the gospel. And even fight for the gospel in the church. Among those who call themselves the people of God, And before we begin to tout and say, thank God that we have never had to do that in this church. Thank God that we've known great peace and quietness and pleasures and delights that we've been given so much. Before we say that, dear brother and sister, listen to what Martin Luther says. Satan does not rage against the lives and opinions of whoremongers, thieves, murderers, perjurers, rebels against God, and unbelievers. Rather, he gives them peace and quietness. He maintains them in his court with all sorts of pleasures and delights and gives them everything they want. In the same way, in the early days of the church, he permitted all idolatries and false religions of the world to be quiet, untouched, and he maintained, defended, and nourished them. It was only the church and religion of Christ that he attacked on every side. This is why Paul had to write the letter to the Galatians. Because the gospel was being attacked in the church and Paul stood up and fought for the gospel. He wrote to the troubled, the afflicted, the vexed, and the tempted in the Galatian churches that they might hold fast and hold firm to the gospel once again. And this is a compact book that that packs a one-two punch with the gospel so that it would bless those who hear it and would keep the gospel at the center of all things. 
and that we would be gospel people and that we would say the gospel is absolutely necessary because people's lives, people's souls are at stake. The difference between heaven and eternal torment in the lake of fire is at stake. That is why we fight for the gospel. And that is why Satan rages against the true gospel. Galatians is nothing less than a defense and exposition of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at the very beginning of this letter, Paul helps us by giving us clues as to how to read the rest of the book. He sets forth principles that must be in place. If you're going to read this book in the right way, you have to understand these truths, these principles. And so he does this in the introduction, in the salutation of the book. This is really the book summarized in just a few verses. We might be tempted to quickly skip over these verses. Think that, well, let's get to the meat. Paul writes these verses for a reason. So let's take some time, learn from them this morning, that he may give us a framework so that we can read the rest of Galatians rightly. So in your outline, you can follow along in your bulletin. But number one, in order to read Galatians rightly, you must submit to the supremacy of Jesus. In order to read Galatians rightly, you must submit to the supremacy of Jesus. Where do you start when you're addressing a letter? Dear so-and-so. Do we even know why we write that word dear? It's become so common knowledge that we just do it. That's the ordinary way that we start a letter. We start with the recipient, but that's not where this letter begins. It's not where letters in the ancient world began. Rather, it begins the very first word with the author of the letter, the book. An author who needs no introduction, but lest we think the first word is unimportant, we should remember it is very important. This is Paul who is writing this letter. These churches would have known Paul. These churches could very well have been the churches that he planted were started by Paul. But we know Paul, the author, with a certain title. He is the Apostle Paul. What do we know about the apostles? Well, they are the very foundation of the church. Had been handpicked by Christ himself. It's their teaching upon which the church is built. They are the messengers and that they are sent out with a particular message From what we know about this letter to the Galatians, it appears as if Paul's apostleship is under attack. There are false teachers who have come into the church and have questioned Paul's status. They have undermined his apostolic position. They have sought to downplay his influence in the church. And even so, the very first verse, Paul begins to defend his status and his position as an apostle. And he does so in the most forceful and direct way that he can. How is it that Paul became an apostle? First, he tells us how it doesn't happen, how it didn't happen for him. He was not sent from men. It wasn't men who got together and thought it would be a good idea to make Paul an apostle and send him out. Paul, it looks like you're a very gifted person, a very savvy person, a very bold person. We want to send you out to do this work of apostleship. Paul didn't come from men, nor was his apostleship through man. 
Men did not confer this office upon him. The other apostles didn't get together and say, yes, Paul, we want you, so we're sending you out. Who is man, after all? Man is weak. Man can be easily fooled. Man can sometimes get it wrong. We are prone to get it wrong. We can have bad motives, and sometimes even our own good intentions might not be God's intentions. And so Paul states emphatically, my apostleship didn't come from man. It wasn't birthed by men. Men are not the source of it. His ministry isn't perpetuated by man's efforts or strength. The source of Paul's ministry is not from men. And then he lowers the boom with this great contrast. His status of apostle didn't come from men or through man, but what? Through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Wait a moment. Did you catch what Paul just said? Not through man, but through Jesus Christ. Wait, wasn't Jesus Christ a man? Yes. But he was not only a man, he was not merely a man. He is also God. And here, Jesus Christ is put on the same plane as God the Father. Here they are, the two of the three persons of the Trinity, the Father and the Son, both divine. They are the source of Paul's apostleship. They are the ones who called Paul and have entrusted him with this work of ministry that he is doing for the building up of Christ's church. This is why Paul even calls himself an ambassador. 2 Corinthians 5.20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. How powerful is Paul's position? So powerful that it comes with divine power and with divine authority. It comes from the one who was even raised from the dead, Jesus Christ. The resurrection is at the forefront of Christian doctrine. We believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again. And here we are told that God raised him from the dead. This is the backing that Paul has on his side. The God who can raise people from the dead. Who rose Jesus Christ from the dead. That is who is called Paul. And Paul knows this to be true because he has seen and experienced the risen Christ on that road to Damascus. Paul had been called and commissioned by the risen Christ himself. He experienced his greatness, his power, his glory firsthand, so much so that he was blinded. Paul was sent from God, and he knew from firsthand experience the one who is called the firstborn from the dead. Colossians 1, 18 and 19 talking about Christ, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What is it that Paul is doing from the very first verse? He is establishing in our minds the supremacy of Jesus Christ. He is driving home into our hearts that Jesus is to be preeminent. He is to have first place in everything. That means he is to rightly have first place in our lives. And it is with such supremacy that comes his faithful rule and authority. 
Paul, from the very beginning of this book, is claiming that authority. The Galatians had to listen to him. They were compelled to listen to him because his authority was not authority intrinsic to himself. His authority was not delegated from man. His authority was a derivative authority that came from the risen Christ himself. And so, to submit to Paul then, to the authority that came from his being an apostle, was submitting to Christ. Christ's authority, to Christ's supremacy. This is why we listen to these words that come to us from Paul. Because we do not merely believe that these are Paul's words, but that these are words that have been given to Paul by God himself as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit to write the very words of Christ. And so then, these words come to us with authority, with the very authority of Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. How many people would say, oh, if someone just came back from the dead and and told me something, I would believe. Guess what? It's happened. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He came back. He appeared to Paul there on the road to Damascus and said, Paul, I have a mission for you. You are my apostle. And Paul saw the risen Christ. And now Paul goes out and he speaks and he writes with the very authority of Christ. But think about it for a moment. Why does it say here at the beginning of Galatians, why does it draw our attention to the fact that God the Father raised him from the dead? Why did God raise Jesus from the dead? Listen to Romans chapter 4 verse 25. Again, talking about Jesus. Who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That is a crucial question in the book of Galatians. How is one justified? That is, how is one made right in the eyes of God? How can anyone stand before a holy God? How is it that man can be considered righteous by God? Do we make ourselves righteous? It is a mixture, is it a mixture of faith and works that makes us righteous before God? No, it is the very work of Christ that makes us righteous, and that is why Christ rose again from the dead. Christ rose again to make us righteous, and in so doing, he overcame the law, sin, death, and hell. And what does this mean for us then as Christians? There are people who would try to take us captive, captive, who would try to enslave us, people who would try to make us doubt or drive us to despair. But when we see the absolute supremacy of Christ in his resurrection, we are confronted with victory. God the Father has raised Christ from the dead for your victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the supremacy of Christ we long to submit to because we see it as the supremacy through which flows God's grace and love and mercy. And there is no one whose supremacy outshines Jesus. And there is no other supremacy that we would want to come under rather than Jesus. And so we submit to the supremacy of 
Jesus Christ. Number two, in order to read Galatians rightly, you must discern that it was written for you. You must discern that it was written for you. Galatians is a book that was written roughly around 50 A.D. That is only slightly less than 2,000 years ago. What can we learn from it? What does Paul say in that letter that would have any meaning or any instruction for us today? And I would say that what Paul has said then still has everything to do with you today. Yes, this was a message directed at a specific area, a region known as Galatia. Today it would be modern-day Turkey. And I take this book as that Paul was writing to churches along the southern coast of what is modern-day Turkey. These would have been churches that he would have planted in his missionary journey, places like Derby and Lystra and Iconia and Pisidia. And so Paul is writing to churches, people that he was familiar with, churches that most likely would have had a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. But look first at what Paul says here in verse 2. And all the brothers who are with me. He reminds us that he is not alone in ministry. Paul was not a lone ranger in what he was doing. He reminds the Galatians that all of the brothers and sisters of the churches are with me, ministering alongside of me, encouraging me. It is a reminder that they are standing together as one, one unified church. It could be that Paul's opponents, who had come into these Galatian churches, had tried to isolate Paul. Paul was one person, they would say. One man, one teacher. But Paul reminds the Galatians, he is not alone in what he's saying. He has the backing of the brethren. He has the backing of the church. And this might have even brought shame to the Galatians' minds. Look at all those who are believing and teaching and thinking and living contrary to the way that we are living. Paul and the brethren are the ones holding to what is true. It is not they who have moved, it is the Galatians who have moved away from them. But then we hear the recipient of the letter to the churches of Galatia tells us something. This letter was not written just to one church. It was a letter that was written to an area and a group of churches. We don't know specifically how many churches, but this letter most likely would have circulated to them. And so we know that this problem is over a particular area. We also know it's addressed to churches, that is, local congregations of people. Paul is writing to groups of people. And he is having to write this because churches, congregations, groups of people are in sin and need to be corrected. I might even go so far as to say that this address to the churches of Galatia is rather a cold greeting. Why would I say that? Well, listen to some other, other greetings that Paul has with other churches. Romans 1.7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be a saint. 1 Corinthians 1.2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.1, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. 
And we could list more, but did you hear these? People who are loved by God. Those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Those who bear the name saints, that is, holy ones. It's in these short verses that Paul encourages those to whom he is writing, but a very different feel to the churches of Galatia. Very cold feeling, as one commentator puts it, a vehement address. This commentator says this, For always to speak mildly to those who are being taught, even when they need vehemence, is not the part of a teacher, but of a corrupter and an enemy. But even though this greeting might be cold, I think there is still a glimmer of hope. In that, Paul still calls them churches. What would be my inclination? These people have lost the gospel. They've lost everything. They're not churches. But yet Paul extends grace to them. They have revolted against that which is the most fundamental, important, necessary part of their faith. And yet Paul still calls them churches. They are not too far gone yet. Yes, they need correction. Yes, they need a firm rebuke. Yes, they need hard and difficult words spoken to them. But there is hope that they are churches and that they will respond rightly to God's word. That they will experience godly sorrow over their sin and seek repentance and forsake their sin. And one of the greatest dangers for you reading this letter is to look down your noses at these Galatians, to think somehow better of yourself, to think more of yourself than you ought, to think that this is somehow a problem for them, but this would never be a problem for us, never be a problem for me. Take heed lest you fall. That is why Galatians was written, because this is A problem that has followed the church down throughout the centuries. It's been a fight for the gospel. It's been a fight for the truth. It's been a fight for getting it right because it's through the gospel that people are saved. And let us not take comfort if we have not felt this fight. If somehow we think that we are immune to this fight or that somehow we've elevated ourselves above this fight. No, we are the troubled, the vexed, the afflicted, and the tempted And if we're not like these miserable and wretched Galatians, then our problem is even greater because Satan doesn't attack that which is not there. No gospel, no need for Satan to attack. The true gospel, there's every reason for Satan to attack, and attack he will. Galatians was written for you, my dear fellow Galatians. Number three. To read Galatians rightly, you must focus on the heart of the gospel. You must focus on the heart of the gospel. You must focus on the heart of the gospel. Paul does what he so often does when he begins his letters. He offers a blessing to the people he is writing to. And it often comes with these familiar words, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If there's any blessing these Galatians needed, if there's any blessing you and I need today, it's to hear these words of grace and peace. Think of the magnitude of these words. We owe everything that we are as Christians to the grace of God. 
We are here today because of the grace of God. We are those who have received unmerited favor, not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it, but because of God's own choosing and as a gift given to us. We are, we are who we are because of the grace of God. We are those who have been saved by his grace. We are called to live in this grace, and that is meant to humble us. We read about the mighty hand of God's grace that has come upon our lives. It's meant to humble us. And it's meant to help us in times of sorrow and affliction. Because what is going to happen in those times of sorrow and affliction in your life? What are you going to cling to? You're going to cling to, you're going to hold to God's amazing grace. And what is it that flows out of this amazing grace? God's peace. Spiritual well-being in God. Do you know God's grace? And so know God's peace. Do you know the ultimate spiritual well-being because you are at peace with God? And it is these that flow to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, complete equality between God the Father and God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 4, we get to the heart of how it is that this grace and peace could come to the Galatians and how it can come to us and all Christians, the very heart of the gospel itself. How is it that grace, God's grace, has come to you? How is it that you're able to know peace, Jesus Christ gave himself. That is, Christ sacrificed himself upon the cross for our sins. That is why he had to give himself up. Not because of his sins. Not because he was guilty. Not because he had done wrong. No, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and by his wounds We are healed. Do not doubt God's great love for you. Do you ever wrestle with that? Do you ever struggle with that? Does God love me? I don't know. I'm not sure. Look at my life. Look at all that's going on. Does God really love me? Christ gave himself. Let all of that doubt flee away. Do not doubt, but know Christ gave himself for our sins. And don't get over that little pronoun, our. We might think of people who would be considered worthy of having Christ die for them. For a good person, one might dare to die. Christ died for people like Peter or John or Paul, for those great saints that we've known throughout the ages. But with that little word, our, we are lavished with the greatness of God's grace that has been given to us because we know the immensity and the heinousness of our sins. There is no one more unworthy of this grace 
of having Christ give himself than for me because I know the utter despicableness of my sins. Christ did not give himself up for our righteousness. Christ did not give himself up for our holiness. He gave himself up for our sins. Not those little sins, those are the great sins, many sins, invincible sins, the sins that have oppressed us, the sins that have enslaved us, the sins that have brought us down into the very depths of the valley of the shadow of death. Believe that Christ was given not for pretend sins, not for small sins, but for great and huge sins, not for one or two, but for all of them. Not for vanquished sins, but for invincible sins. By knowing that Christ gave himself for our sins means that we are saying that there is nothing we could do, no works, no righteousness, no effort, nothing that we could do to take away our sins. These words are the great thunderclaps from heaven given against all kinds of righteousness. You can't take away your sins, but behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is... What Christ dying for our sins means that our sin has been dealt with. Our sins have been expiated. That is, the guilt of our sin has been taken away through the payment of a penalty. And it was Christ who paid that penalty. It was Christ who was offering himself as an atonement for sin. Christ gave himself as the ransom payment so that we would be free from the dominion of sin. So that you would no longer be enslaved to sin so that you would no longer be held captive by the guilt of your sin, that guilt that would make you stand condemned before God, when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within. When the great accuser weighs you down with this guilt, saying to you over and over that you are a sinner, you are a sinner, you are a sinner. It is to this truth that you are to fly. You are to fly to Christ who gave himself for our sins. So when Satan would remind you that you are a sinner, he is not actually harming you. Rather, he is giving you ammunition. He is giving you the knife by which you can cut his throat for it is those who who Christ died. He died for sinners. As a sinner for whom Christ died, I am reminded of all of the benefits that I possess in Christ, my Redeemer. I am reminded of God's great love for me. I am reminded of God's glory expressed to me. I am reminded it is by his wounds that I have been healed. No, being called a sinner is not a reason to despair. It's not a reason to feel bad. Not a reason to give up or give in or to be made weak. It's no reason to curl up and be paralyzed. No, for the Christian to be called a sinner is an immense source of comfort. Yes, I am a sinner and it is Christ who gave himself for my sins. He has delivered us. He has rescued us tells us something of our position. We are helpless and hopeless and desperate. We are people who need to be delivered. Your life may feel like it could come crashing down around you. Maybe you already feel that way. Maybe you already feel like life is crashing down around you. Maybe you feel like you're drowning in the sea. 
Let me tell you what Christ can do for you. He will not throw you a manual that tells you how to swim. He throws you himself, the lifeline, to rescue you, deliver you, save you. Maybe that's what you need today, to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Let him rescue you and save you. You know life is helpless. You know you're hopeless. You know the weight of your guilt upon you. You know the accusation of being called a sinner. Today, put your faith in Jesus Christ. Be rescued by him. Be delivered from the present evil age. So what Paul says we're delivered from, right? So that we would be delivered from the present evil age. This wasn't just merely 2,000 years ago. The present evil age still exists today. And we are those who know the present evil age. We've felt it all around us. We've felt its tug and its pull. We've known its empty promises. We've seen the damage and the destruction it can bring into one's life. This is what Jesus has come to bring us out of so that we would not be conformed to this world, so that we would not follow the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, so that we would be in love with this world. No, Christ has delivered us from this present evil age. This is the realization and the tension that we have as Christians. As one commentator calls it, believers are living in the twilight zone. They have experienced the saving power of the age to come, yet still reside in the present evil age. There is an underlying hope. We have been delivered from this present evil age, this evil age that would try to hold us captive. This age is dominated by sin and Satan. He's delivered us from that age so that we has no more say in our lives, has no more dominion over our lives, and there's hope in that this present evil age will not, does not last forever. It will come to an end. It will pass away. It will give way to the age that is to come, the age when the kingdom of God will be consummated in all its glory, when all the enemies of Christ and all sin and even death are vanquished finally and forever. And all this has happened according to the will of God. The gospel has been accomplished because it is God's will. It is God's plan from the very foundation of the world. And it is the saving work of Christ that was done according to God's will. And it's that that makes it possible then for us to do God's will as well. We cannot, must not, lose sight of the gospel, the heart of the gospel Because that is the place to start to kill our own righteousness. It's the starting place to eliminate the thinking that we can somehow merit God's favor. It puts an end to depending upon ourselves that somehow we can rid ourselves of our sin by our own works and causes us to have a life that's completely dependent on Christ's work, on Christ's sacrifice, and on Christ's death as the only work that will ever save us and bring us to God. Number four, finally.
if we read Galatians rightly, you must be led to worship. You must be led to worship. You must be led to worship. Isn't this where Paul ends the introduction? Because he's been so moved by meditating on the heart of the gospel for one sentence (laughs) that it blossoms forth from his pen this great praise for his God. To God be glory forever and ever. That is, may God be eternally glorified. That is what flows out of the gospel, God's glory. Christ giving himself, Christ delivering us, the will of the Father being executed and accomplished through the plan of redemption. It's not for the preacher of the gospel to get the glory. No, preaching the gospel is for the glory of God alone. There's a simple test for the true gospel. Who is it that gets the glory? Who is it that is praised when all is said and done, when the final period is placed on the good news? If it's not God who's glorified, then it's not the gospel. But notice where Paul puts this doxology, right at the beginning of the book. Where would would you have put it? At the end? Let's build it up. Let's raise our argument to a peak, to the pinnacle, to the climax, and then burst out in doxology, in praise, and in worship. But Paul leads us to worship at the very beginning. He led the Galatians to worship even with their problems, even with their struggles, even with their sin. He lifts them and us up to the heights of God's eternal glory being put on display forever. And he does this because he has already given us good and foundational reasons for why we worship. Christ gave himself for us. Worship. Christ delivered us. Worship. God's will was done. Worship. God's grace and peace have been mediated to ruin sinners through Jesus Christ. Worship. These are the good and foundational reasons of why we worship. These are what compel us to worship. When we meditate on all that God has done for us through his son Jesus Christ. And look at what Paul does. Five verses in and then amen. Amen. Let it be at the very beginning which is meant to strengthen and confirm this doxology. Amen. So that you wouldn't skip over it or skim it. Amen. So that you stop and worship. Amen. So that... You give God all of the glory for the great things he has done, particularly in the gospel. Amen. So that this worship will bring your will into line with God's will. So that then you would say, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. We want to worship you. We will worship you. Amen and amen. Men, Father, we thank you for your word today that's come to us from the book of Galatians. Important word, a necessary word, a word that we need. I pray that our hearts would be open to hear what you've said to us. And pray that your spirit would work in us. 
Lord, if there's someone here today who does not know you, and they've heard this great gospel truth, that they would give their lives to you today. It's nothing to be embarrassed about. It's nothing to be feel shame about. It's a glorious thing. It's a rejoicing thing. It's, it's a thing that we long and desire to see people come to Jesus Christ. And that they would see their eternity. They feel the weight of eternity. That they would know they can't go on without knowing Jesus Christ as their Savior. They can't go on without knowing that hope. They can't go on without being born again. So today I pray that you would work hearts and lives here, that people would put their faith and trust in you, follow you with all that they are, say Jesus Christ is Lord, he's sacrificed for my sins, he's risen again from the dead, now I'm going to live my life for him. We pray this all for your glory, Father. Glory that will be expressed forever and ever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.